Hi, I'm Abby Ellsworth. I'm a civilian interviewing law enforcement from around the country. My goal is to tell the real stories of law enforcement, the ones that don't make the news. Today, I am welcoming Nate Sylvester. Many of you know him as the Officer Nate on social media. Nate was with the Twin Falls, Idaho Police Department for 12 years, from 2006 to 2018, and then joined the Bellevue Marshal's Office December 1st, 2020. In April 2021, Nate posted a TikTok video with an imaginary conversation with LeBron James, in which he pretends to seek advice on what to do at the scene of a disturbance involving two men wielding knives. To say the video went viral would be an understatement. We're going to talk about this and so much more today, including what Nate's doing now on social media, his podcast, and his book, Never Off Duty, which I just read and highly recommend. So Nate, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. And thanks for the uh, the uh, plug on the book. I appreciate it. It was really good. I honestly, I've, I couldn't put it down and we'll, we'll talk about it more, but it was, it was, it's sort of, I would call it a memoir and it's your life, but it's also insights on law enforcement and policing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but it's, it's very engaging and it, you don't talk down to the reader. You, it's like a conversation with you. It's, it's really, I really enjoyed it. Well, good. I'm glad. Yeah. And I'm going to recommend everyone get it. So I can also honestly say this is the first time that I've had a guest that has also been on Dr. Phil. So I've reached a new level. (laughs) (laughs) No, but for anyone who doesn't know, you were somewhat recently on Dr. Phil to talk about cancel culture. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, September of of last year, September uh, 2022. They did. They had me on the show to talk about the LeBron James TikTok and the aftermath of that. And it was, uh, it was quite an interesting conversation with Dr. Phil and his other guests. Yeah. It shed light on how much you suffered in the wake of this. But for people who don't know, let's talk about what, let's actually set it up with the incident that happened in Columbus, Ohio in okay. April, right? Cause that's what led to the TikTok. Yeah. So in, in April of 2021, Uh, There was an incident in Columbus, Ohio, where Officer Nicholas Reardon responded to a disturbance. And when he arrived at this disturbance, you know, it was was chaotic. You can watch the body camera footage, but there were, I don't know, like 10, 10 people there. They were all fighting. They were, you know, it was a physical altercation. People were getting pushed to the ground. And Micaiah Bryant, who's a 16 year old black girl, had a knife in her hand and she had pushed another young black girl up against a car and was getting ready to stab her when Officer Reardon shot and killed her, essentially saving the life of the other black girl. Now, of course, this is in the wake of the George Floyd incident, and that's still very fresh in everybody's minds. You know, there's still this anti-police sentiment sort of circulating the country at this point, and people aren't really taking the time to be objective about these use of force incidents, and they're automatically assuming that because it was a white police officer and a black suspect, that it must have been unjustified and qualified as police brutality or excessive force. And of course, LeBron James bought into that, and he he tweeted out a picture of this officer with the caption that read, "You're next." Hashtag accountability. Now, a lot of people interpreted that as a threat against this police officer. And it, of course, it pissed off a lot of the law enforcement community and, you know, even non-law enforcement, just, you know, civilians who are in support of law enforcement. And at the time I was on, uh, I was on TikTok and I, my, my niche was sort of, uh, you know, police officers uh, shedding a positive light on law enforcement. You know, I started to do a lot of videos that were satirical in nature, that were funny, that showed sort of the, 
the human side of, of police officers. And I'd started to amass quite a large following because people enjoyed my videos. Well, I had already seen several police officers do videos mocking LeBron James for his tweet. And I thought, well, I'll do one too, you know. And so I did my video, which you've, which you've seen. And I didn't anticipate that it would go viral the way that it did. But I posted that, I believe it was April 24th of 2021. And that was a Saturday morning just after I had gotten off off shift. And then by the next day, I was getting phone calls and text messages from people sending me like links to articles that had my that had my video in it. And I was getting emails from Fox News and CNN, you know, wanting me to come on their show and just discuss the, the TikTok. And I think between April and probably August of that year, I did 40 interviews between news, radio and podcasts. So it was quite the wild ride there for a little bit. Just to step back for a minute. So the TikTok, I'm going to play the audio for my audience, but I encourage you to watch the video because it, it's, it's well done and you do need the visual to go with it. Uh, and I will put the link to the YouTube version of it in the, in the episode notes, because if you Google it, you end up finding people who are attacking you or who have, you know. It's not surprising. Right. <laughs> So here's the audio to the TikTok, and to set it up, you are in uniform in your patrol car. Okay, here we go. Dispatch, I've arrived at that disturbance. We have LeBron call my cell phone right away, please. Thank you. Excuse me, sir. Excuse me. No, can you put the knife down, please, sir? Sir, no, 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 sir, don't stab it. No, no, stop stabbing. Stop. Oh, hold on. Hold on. It's LeBron. LeBron, hey, yeah, it's me again. Listen, I'm out here at this disturbance call, and there's a guy trying to stab another guy with a knife. What do you think I should do? Why does that matter? Okay, uh, well, they're both black. One guy's trying to stab another guy with a knife. Deadly force is completely justified. Uh-huh. I see. So you don't care if a black person kills another black person, but you do care if a white top kills a black person, even if he's doing it to save the life of another black person? I mean, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but then again, you are really good at basketball, so I guess I'll take your word for it. All right. Yep. Okay. All right. Thanks, LeBron. Uh, Michael Jordan's the GOAT. What? Nothing. I got to go. Sorry, guys. You're on your own. Good luck. So that gives my audience an idea of the content without the video. And as I said, I will include a link to it in the episode notes. What part of it do you think people reacted to? It wasn't just that it was LeBron James, but it was... I think it's, you know... I, it struck a chord with both sides, obviously. I had a tremendous amount of support, but at the same time, people came out of the woodwork to attack and criticize me, you know, for, for the video. And I, I think it was the, the same point that actually struck that chord where, you know, people who are supportive of police and at least have some understanding of just how nuanced and complicated a police officer's job can be understood that you can't just attack police officers because of this this narrative and that every time a police officer you know uses force against a black suspect and including deadly force that it's automatically unjustified because that's the that's the narrative that the mainstream media was was trying to paint and then of course you know people who who were uh critical of of my video to that same point thought you know tried to paint me out to be this this racist police officer who was insensitive to the death of Micaiah Bryant because she's a 16-year-old black girl and that I was mocking her death. Of course, that's not at all what I was doing. I was mocking LeBron James' tweet and his sort of his self-proclaimed 
policing expertise, you know, because it wasn't the first time LeBron James has criticized police officers. And this was just the one that that really sort of uh, was the straw that broke the camel's back for a lot of for a lot of people and especially a lot of police officers. So I think that the main message was that, look, police officers have a job to do, whether it's, you know, whether we're dealing with white people, black people, brown people. We, we can't discriminate and we can't just stand there and twiddle our thumbs while s- someone's life is in danger. And, you know, police officers don't see color on the street. They, they don't. Despite what the mainstream media would have you believe, police officers don't approach a situation. They don't approach a call for service with the idea that, well, if this person's black, then I'm not really going to do my job or, you know, I'm going to shoot first and ask questions later. That's not how police officers operate, but that's the light that they've been painted in. And so the point of my video was to try and get people to understand that, look how ridiculous you sound when you're criticizing this officer for saving the life of another young black girl. And you talk in your book at some length about how how right Officer Reardon got it. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember the incident well, and I, I understand that people, anyone is going to be upset about a 16-year-old girl losing her life. Sure. You know, I mean, you say in the book that he he didn't shoot the man kicking the girl in the head right in front of him. He didn't fire downrange into a crowd or nearby residences. He didn't try to aim for Bryant's hand, which would have pierced her arm and struck the other girl. He didn't shoot Bryant's leg or foot, permitting her to continue the attack. He didn't open fire on the group. People need to understand that he handled this. The only way he could have, in my opinion... I mean, the problem is he's, you know, by the time Micaiah Bryant gets into this position where she's ready to stab this other girl, he's, what, 20, 25 feet away, probably. And so it, he and she's milliseconds from plunging that knife into this girl's neck, you know, at least based on what his perception is of, of this incident and the, the facts and the circumstances as they unfold in front of him. Tasing uh, tasers are effective 50 percent of the time and. Mm-hmm. And they're not and they're not as accurate. You know, you may you may miss you may you know, it it would just fail. And then that just that prolongs the amount of time you have to actually draw your weapon and deal with the threat effectively. The the unrealistic expectation of officers being able to shoot a weapon out of someone's hand or shoot them in the leg. I mean, it's hard enough to hit a stationary target at 25 feet center mass where you're supposed to hit it. But but the idea that you're supposed to shoot a moving target that, you know, is the size of my fist and not hit the other girl or anybody else that might be downrange is just, it's not realistic at all. And people don't understand that. Right. And this will happen within seconds. I mean, this wasn't like he had time to think, okay, what should I do here? Right. So getting back to the TikTok, you know, I think also it's not even just mocking LeBron. It's making the point that people who don't know anything about law enforcement, about police work, should not be opinionating on police work and certainly not with the the following and influence that he has right yeah yeah i mean you know lebron james he has the right to say whatever he wants to say on his own twitter account i get it but like you pointed out he at the time he had about 50 million followers and he has a tremendous amount of influence over those followers i mean believe those a lot of those people would follow lebron james right over a cliff you know if if it came down to that so and, you know, there was an influx of police ambushes in the wake of his of his tweet. Now, can I prove that, you know, that LeBron James is culpable in those ambushes because those perpetrators were influenced by his tweet? No, it's mere speculation. But 
That's my belief. And LeBron James has a responsibility to, to temper what he says online because of the consequences that, that it could have, the negative consequences that could ha- that it could have. Now, if he would have said something like, you know, I just don't understand, you know, why he had to shoot this this, you know, young lady and I wish somebody could explain it to me, that would have been different. But then but to green light a police officer who was just doing his job and who was justified in doing his job. And of course we got confirmation of that almost a year later because he was cleared by his department. Right. Um, and cleared by the DA, the DA's office is just, it's completely inappropriate. And I mean, it's, it's out of bounds for, for someone of, of, of his stature and, you know, his influence to do something like that to a police officer. And, you know, what you said is so true. It's, I said this in another episode with Drew Breezy. Wouldn't it be nice if someone asked the question why and then waited for the answer? Right. You know, if you don't understand it, I get it. But ask, you know, right. and don't condemn. The other thing is, let's talk for just let's just spend one second thinking about the impact on Officer Reardon. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know from doing interviews that an officer involved shooting, a deadly force encounter has an incredible impact on the officer, which no one ever wants to talk or hear about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, no, that's, I mean, to your point, it's something that he's got to live with and figure out how to cope with in a healthy way. Uh, Because I can't imagine, I mean, I've been involved in a shooting, an officer-involved shooting. The perpetrator, the suspect that I I shot and killed wasn't a young, you know, wasn't a young person, wasn't a, you know, a juvenile. So I can only imagine the the amount of second guessing that he probably did. Like, did I, especially in the, you know, with the media attention that it got and with so many people being outraged by it, you know, he probably went through all kinds of psychological and emotional torture, second guessing himself going, are they right? Did I make the wrong decision? Could I have tased her? Could I have done something else and saved everybody? And of course, you know, it'd be nice if people like us could reach out and go, you made the right choice. As tragic as it is, you know, those two things can be true at once. Her death can be tragic, but it can also be justified. And I don't think anybody's denying that, you know, that a 16 year old girl being shot and killed by police isn't tragic. Of course it is, but she made that choice. Now, if we're going to blame somebody else other than her, why don't we blame her parents? There are so many, so many steps that could have been taken to prevent what happened to Micaiah Bryant, other than blaming the police officer for what he did. We, We have to get back to teaching accountability Right. Holding the individual accountable rather than making excuses and holding society accountable for the for the poor decisions that people make as individuals, because it's not helping anybody. It's certainly not helping the prison population. It's not helping crime rates. It's you know, it's not helping the victims of these crimes, because to constantly teach people that, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of decisions you make and how poor those decisions are and how badly they hurt you and other people. It's not your fault. And that's just such a toxic, dysfunctional way, especially to teach young people. Well, and I also think that people have lost respect for what a law enforcement officer is there to do. They seem to have forgotten. And I want to address this because you did a TikTok on this recently, that when an officer tells you to do something, you do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if you are detained, you are detained. And, you know, this isn't a negotiation. Right. You know, and I also think that somehow people don't are not aware that a knife is a deadly weapon. You know, I think that mm-hmm. played into this too. Oh, sure. People don't like to hear that police officers are in charge when they show up. 
But that's the authority that we've given them as taxpaying citizens. You know, that's part of the oath that they take. And that's part of their, you know, the, the duty and the, the charge that they're given is that they have statutory authority to make arrests and charge people with crimes. And I mean, so if you're pulled over by the cops, they own you for that amount of time and people just they can't stand to hear it. But that's the truth. That's the case. That's why, you know, if you're stopped by the cops, whether it's on a traffic stop or, or whatever else, it's considered a seizure under the Fourth Amendment because your freedom of movement is restricted and an officer can tell you, you know, essentially guide you where to go, tell you where to go. If you want you to get out of your car and sit on the curb, you have to do that. And the Supreme Court has, has upheld those, you know, those principles or that concept for, for years and years under, you know, in, in many in many rulings. But people don't have the right and they're not entitled to resist arrest and obstruct and delay in an officer's investigation just because their ego is hurt because someone is exerting authority over them. I'm sorry, but that's the world that we live in. And it's better than most places in the world where police officers are corrupt and they can be bribed and, you know, you can be held without cause and there is no due process. You know, at least we have that. But to to believe that you have the right to resist and defy and obstruct an officer is something that seems to have been ingrained, especially in younger generations. And again, I think it comes down to the failure of parents. Well, you did a, I do want to get back to the video and your life, but you did a TikTok recently or yeah, or it was Instagram where you had two young black men, I think one was under 18 and the cops, I think the one kid decides, no, I'm not going to sit here and follow orders. And so then the officer has to then place him on the ground and handcuff him. Mm -hmm. And they're all up in arms because he's been handcuffed. It's like, right. Like he, like the officer's done something wrong. It's like, mm -hmm. right. So go ahead. I, you remember it better than I do. Well, what people don't understand about these videos that are circulating the internet is most of them are edited and uh, trimmed, you know, to, to leave out most of the context in order to make the officers look bad. And that particular incident down in Florida is these, these kids. And so the person that got arrested, he's actually 22 years old, right. uh, but they were in the gym in the bathroom smoking weed and the staff caught them smoking weed and told them they needed to leave. And they got belligerent and disorderly with the staff. And so the staff called the cops. So again, it's like, why are we here? We're not here because the cops just showed up and wanted to harass a bunch of, a bunch of black kids. We're here because we were called here because these guys were being disorderly and weren't leaving when they were told to leave because they broke the rules. And now you have this 22-year-old kid who, again, believes he's being detained. And so he has to do what the officer tells him to do. And when the officer says you're not allowed to use your phone and you try to use your phone and then we, when the officer goes to grab your hand to prevent you from using your phone and you pull away, that's resisting. And so, yes, when people resist like that, especially physically, they go to the ground. They go to the ground and they get handcuffed because on the ground is when, where we can control them. Now, right. a lot of people who have never been in a fight and they don't understand sort of the physicality of taking someone to the ground like that. They look at that video and go, oh, my God, right. why did he have to be so violent? And it's like, but that's not violent. That really isn't. That was a very low level use of force. The kid wasn't injured. Right. He laid there on the ground finally after, you know, after being taken down. And they handcuffed him right. and he didn't have to go to the hospital. He didn't have to be treated for any injuries. But again, it's just these, you know, with with TikTok and Instagram and, and YouTube and you've got these, you know, police auditors now who want to go and record the police. And right. again, edit the video to make the police look bad. You have to have people on the other side of it going, wait a minute, there's got to be more to this, which is what I try to do. If you actually look at the video objectively and understand the circumstances surrounding the incident, you would actually understand if you wanted to understand that it was justified. But most people don't want to understand. Right.
Exactly. Well, well, let's get back to your story. So we were talking about Officer Reardon and then the tweet, the TikTok, and this pretty much upended your life. <laughs> so you said you immediately started getting calls from media, but did you understand that this was going to end your, get you fired? And In like, my career? Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, when I posted the video, of course, I didn't, you know, I just thought it was going to be like a, you know, a normal video. It would get the same amount of engagement and views as most of my other other videos had. But I did in the, you know, I, I knew that I was touching on a, uh, you know, on a sensitive topic and that it was in the national spotlight. So I thought, okay, this is, I, I have to be methodical about this and I have to incorporate some satire while at the same time sending a message. Now, of course, I had no idea again, like it was going to go viral like it did all over the world. But then when I started getting the phone calls and the text messages and the emails, I thought, oof, yeah. I'm sure my bosses have seen this video by now. And I'm sure the mayor and the city council have probably been made aware of it. And given that I police in a very liberal area, I'm now wondering, OK, how many complaints have been filed so far? Now, this was a Sunday. You know, I was in Utah at the time visiting some friends when I started getting all of these messages and phone calls. And so. I called my my boss and she said, what have you done? <laughs> and, but she was a fan of my TikTok. She actually followed me on TikTok and she appreciated, you know, my videos and the way I painted law enforcement in a positive light. But she knew, like I did, that this was going to ruffle some feathers. And so she was trying to prepare for that. Well, the next that following Monday, we had firearms training. And in the middle of firearms training, uh, I get a call from the mayor who, you know, wants to talk about this. And he's upset because, you know, some residents in, in Bellevue, Idaho are, are calling him to complain, saying that the video was racist and that I'm a danger to the community and I shouldn't be policing in the community. And of course, I'm, I'm on the phone and I'm asking him, I'm like, uh, how, how exactly does this video disqualify me as a competent police officer? How does this make me a danger to the community? I'm not exactly sure. Because <laughs> it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm like, have you seen the video? And he hadn't seen the video at that point. And I said, well, maybe you should watch it. But it, this this is a video that I posted off duty. Now, granted, I was in uniform and still sitting in a patrol vehicle. But I did not disclose the name of my agency. And I never had in any of my videos. Of course, it didn't take long for you know the media outlets with a lot of resources to find out where I worked. But... Um, to, to say that, you know, I was trying to represent the department or disparage the badge or, you know, bring my agency or the city into disrepute is just, it, it's just silliness. But that being said, the mayor at the time and the city council were all Democrats. And so, of course, it became political at that point because my video sort of exposed my conservative political perspective, at least with regard to the policing narrative that, you know, that was um, sort of pervading our country at the time. And they didn't like that. They didn't. And one of the thing that I, that I failed to mention before is that when I was hired by the Bellevue Marshal's office during my interview, the mayor and two other city council members participated in the interview. And one of the city council members asked me uh, how I affiliate politically. Hmm. And I thought, well, that's kind of an odd question for an employment interview, but I answered it. And I said, well, I'm conservative. And he said, do you think that that would be an issue policing in a predominantly liberal area? And I said, no, I don't understand why it would be. How, what does 
politics have to do with law enforcement, you know? And so we were able to move past that, but it always kind of stuck in the back of my mind. And of course it makes a lot of sense as, the, as to the reason I was fired is because now in the national spotlight, I, you know, a police officer from Bellevue, Idaho is sending a conservative message to, to, to the left about the importance of, of police work. And so they claimed that it, it wasn't based on any political conflict that they had with me. They, you know, they claimed that it was because I violated our department's social media policy. Getting fired was almost one of the more tame things that happened to you, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, you know, seeing you on Dr. Phil and seeing you talk about, in fact, let me read the part from your book where you talk about getting canceled. So, you, I mean, people came for you, mm -hmm. social media, doxing, I mean, I'll let you, let me read the quote and then I'll throw it to you. But you say in the book, make no mistake, when the cancel culture comes for you, they come for it all. They want your career, your savings, your home, and even your life. That's not to say they will come kill you, although I think maybe some of them wanted to. Mm -hmm. That was me talking. <laughs> That's not to say they will come kill you. But in my case, I was encouraged to kill myself many times. Yeah. So... I mean, talk about that. That I mean, if you want to talk about harassment and bullying and hateful behavior, you know, I'm on my seventh TikTok account now because I, I keep getting banned and they cite reasons for, you know, violation of community guidelines, specifically harassment and bullying. And I've never, ever suggested to anyone that they kill themselves. I've never threatened anyone with physical violence. I've, I've never been so, you know, degrading and vile to anyone else online the way that they came, you know, the way that they treated me in the aftermath of the LeBron James TikTok. And I mean, you, you know, you're right. They even came after my daughter. They found my daughter's TikTok account and started sending her private messages and just some of the most vile, nasty things that you can think of to say to a, I think she was 16 at the time, you know, and it hurt her feelings. It, it bothered her that people would come after her that way because she didn't do anything, you know, and I had to sit down and talk with her and remind her that, you know, this has nothing to do with you because these people don't know you. They don't, you know, they just know that you're my daughter and they know that if they can hurt you, then they can hurt me because I can take criticism all day long. I can, I can take the hateful comments and because it, it doesn't mean anything, but it's a lot harder for a 16 year old girl to understand why she's being attacked by people that she doesn't know. So that, that part was probably the hardest part and worrying about, okay, how's this going to affect my other family members? You know, how's it going to affect my parents? Are they going to find out who they are? Are they going to, you know, are they going to come to the house? Are they going to find out my address? So it was, I mean, yeah, it was, it was a little bit stressful there to, you know, for a little while, but again, that, you know, with the amount of hate and criticism and, you know, people just coming after me to, to, to stone me and draw and quarter me, I had so much support on the other side, you know, people sending money, people sending emails and letters and praise and just, you know, the, the, Hey, don't give up. Don't let them silence you. You know, we need your voice. We need your message. Uh, you have a platform now. Don't let them take it from you. That stuff was very encouraging and was the only reason that I kept going. And, you know, is the reason I'm doing what I'm doing now. Right. Well, I am, I am sorry that that happened to you. I mean, I appreciate it. We got through it. You know, it was, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a little unsettling, you know, yeah. to have people to hate you, have people hate you that much, you know, to have them say, well, you know, you need to go kill yourself. And if you don't do it, then we're going to do it. Um, but yet, you know, you have to realize that these are, are cowards talking from behind a keyboard right. and, you know, most of them, 
I would say probably 99% of them wouldn't dare say those things to my face. <laughs> you know, that they, they can't stand when people tell the truth. And that's essentially what I was doing. And that's the only thing I do with my videos is I tell the truth and I, I speak on what I believe to be right. And people like that, they hate that. Well, you know, we went through something like that in the Seattle area, I'm sure in Portland and other markets after the or during and the riots. And it wasn't as personal as yours, but there was a sense of fear of if you were a law enforcement supporter. I mean, I was afraid someone was going to come kill me. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not kidding. Like literally come kill me. Yeah. I, I mean, my, my husband, who's not given to hysteria the way I might be, was even concerned. You know, there's the yeah. doc, there's the, the people. I mean, the officers on the front lines were getting physically attacked, verbally attacked. People were getting doxxed. People were showing up at officers' houses. You know, it was it was scary. So I can yeah. only imagine what that was like on this very personal level for you. Yeah, like I said, it was a little unsettling and disconcerting but you know after a while again you re you realize that it, they're they're idle threats but you still remain vigilant just in case just in case somebody you see somebody waiting outside your home or you see somebody you know following you in your vehicle it's i mean that's smart to do anyway you know but if you're in the national spotlight and you have so many people who hate you and literally want you to die you do look over your shoulder every now and then right right yeah. well i would like to talk about your career as a police officer. You were a police officer for 12 years. And mm -hmm. as Dr. Phil thanked you for your service, I will thank you for yeah, being I, a police officer. I appreciate it. In the book, you talk about why you wanted to become a police officer. Do you want to mm -hmm. touch on that? Sure. Uh, you know, I when I was a young kid, I was fascinated with police officers and police work, of course, probably because my, my perception of, of police work was was influenced by Hollywood, you know, mostly, you know, Hollywood paints police officers and detectives, especially to be this very glamorous lifestyle in this position. And I thought, wow, that'd be, you know, that'd be amazing. I want to be a cop. And of course, my mom, understanding the reality of, of police work, you know, being the wise grown woman that she is to really discouraged me from pursuing those aspirations. And so, you know, as I got older, and, you know, got into junior high, high school and college, i you know, I set my sights on, on different things and my dreams of, of becoming a police officer sort of dissipated until, you know, one day I, when I was married to my daughter's mother, we were out to eat with her parents and ran into a woman who used to babysit my ex-wife when she was, when she was a young kid. And she was a police officer at the time. And she was talking about how much she loved her job and that they were hiring. And she looked at me and she's like, you know, you ought to come apply. And I thought, Okay, because, you know, the job I was working at the time was in agriculture, uh, you know, at a, a tractor dealership and it, probably the worst job I'd ever had. <laughs> and so I was extremely dissatisfied with my with my current employment. And so I thought, why not? You know, what, what could it hurt? They, they'll say no. You know, that's the worst that could happen is they say no. So I went and applied, filled out the background packet and all of that. And I, you know, I, I went to the uh, the time and the place for the physical fitness battery, which, you know, they do first in the hiring process, at least in Idaho, that's the way they do it. And I remember looking around the room and I, seeing all of these military veterans with their Marine Corps and Army and, and Navy workout gear on. And I thought, oh, my God, I have no <laughs> there was like 40 people, 40 candidates for four positions. Oh, I think. Wow. I'm like, I have no shot. I'm just I'm already discouraged, you know, so. We do the we do the physical test and, you know, I, I pass. And when you pass the test, they give you a time and a date for your first interview. And 
so I went in for my, my interview and the interview board consisted of, I think four different employees with the police department, including a staff sergeant and I think a detective. And I was told later by, by the, uh, the staff sergeant that was in charge of recruiting that the members of the oral board said that I gave one of the best interviews that they'd ever been a part of. And I thought, oh, okay, uh, that's, that's encouraging. And so I just, you know, I, I kept getting passed along or graduated, I guess, to each step in the hiring process. And eventually they called me and offered me a job. And what I realized after that is they had had an influx of officers leave for different agencies. So they had sort of expedited their their hiring process so that they could get us hired and get us sent to the very next academy, which was literally two days after they offered me the job. So I had two days to sort of get all of my affairs in order, at least for the for the next week, because I had to go to Meridian, Idaho, which is where the academy is, which is about two hours from where I live. So, you know, and at the time, my daughter was two years old, I think, or a little little under two years old. So that was that was kind of tough. And it was, you know, it was challenging to have to leave my wife and daughter for a week at a time, you know, and I could come home on the weekends and visit them. But that's kind of how my my start uh, in law enforcement occurred. It was it was like I, I had these fantasies of being a police officer, which then I sort of put out of my mind to pursue other things. And all of a sudden, this opportunity was dropped into my lap. I had very little time to prepare for it, but it all worked out. Did you feel called to it? Because you do have a section in the book where you talk about law enforcement as a calling for most officers? I think, I think so. I mean, at least for the time, you know, that I spent in the job. And I think that's true for, for most police officers. I don't know that it's true for every officer because there are a lot of officers who begin their career in law enforcement and then quickly realize that the job isn't what they thought it was going to be. And so, you know, they, they quit to go do other things and there's nothing wrong with that. And I think I even mentioned that in the book is if you don't think that this job is for you, then you should go do it, literally anything else. You can't be on the fence about being a police officer. You either have to jump in with both feet or go the hell away because, you know, you, you don't want officers who are going to be timid or hesitant to make decisions. Because like I said, police officers have authority and and a lot of these calls that they, you know, that they have to respond to that, you know, what whether they're life or death or, or, you know, or making an arrest or, or whatever, you have to be confident and you can't second guess and you can't, you can't hesitate a lot of times because that will come back to bite you in a lot of different ways. But I think for, for police officers who can find the intrinsic value in the work that they do, then yes, it's definitely a calling for them. And for me, that was the case for, for a long time. I don't know that I would, I probably wouldn't go back given the opportunity at this point. I think that part of my life is over and I've, I've definitely turn the page into a new chapter. But uh, it was my calling, at least for the time that I was there. And you enjoyed it? You seemed like you enjoyed it. I did. I, I enjoyed I enjoyed the people that I worked with. I worked with a lot of really good men and women throughout my career, and which is one of the things that really frustrates me about this whole anti-police narrative and the idea that all police officers are corrupt and, you know, shouldn't be doing the job is because I worked with so many good men and women who never showed any signs of racism or corruption or being unscrupulous. They were all good men and women doing their best to do the job the right way. And, you know, I developed a, a pretty strong bond and a camaraderie with a lot of those people that I worked with. And that's what I miss the most. But I do miss the detective work. To me, that was a lot of fun being methodical about investigating a case and uh, the interview and interrogation part. I enjoyed the most, I think, probably because I enjoy sort of the, the criminology behind, you know, why, why criminals do what they do or why people make the choices that they, that they make. And, you know, what, what are the, what are the motivating factors or what drives human behavior? And you see a lot of that come out when you interview a suspect and you're trying to 
get them to confess to a crime. So that was one of the things that I enjoyed the most. And I mean, even certain aspects of, of patrol work, you know, driving around in your patrol car, have, kind of having that freedom to travel around the city and then, you know, responding to calls and filling your non-directed time with things like, uh, you know, trying to find drugs or trying to find DUIs or trying to find warrants. So it's definitely a responsibility having sort of that much freedom, I would say, or at least leeway to work the way you want to work, you know, within reason. So yeah, there are a lot of the, the thing that I don't miss about uh, police work is the the bureaucracy, the mm-hmm. inter-office bureaucracy and sort of the strained relationship that police officers have with their administrators. I, I wish I could say what exactly was the cause of the disconnect. It seems like once you once you promote above the level of a staff sergeant or a lieutenant, uh, your job becomes more political than it than it is geared more towards law enforcement and you know, the rank and file guys are just they've become expendable. And it doesn't take but a frivolous complaint from a citizen sometimes to completely upend an officer's life and destroy his career and his livelihood. Mm. So that's the thing that I that I don't miss is sometimes coming to work wondering if I'm going to have a job <laughs> the next day uh, because someone filed a complaint because they didn't like the way I looked at him. Right. You know, and can imagine that's only happening more now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you sort of in this area t- dealing with administration and I want to talk about the difficult times that you had. I just did an interview. So in my work of interviewing law enforcement for the past 12, 13 years, it's generally always been sort of with a recruiting or training where you don't talk about the the tough parts of the job. And in doing Mm -hmm. this podcast, I've heard more and more about how much the job can take from you, take out of you. I just did an interview with a woman who sort of like you developed PTSD over time and lost her job. She attempted suicide. So I want to, if I could read this quote to you from Mm -hmm. your book about the tough times that you went through. So Mm -hmm. you say, occasionally the darkness inside must rise to the surface to respond to the darkness in the world. Sometimes it takes everything you have and leaves nothing behind. Once the threat is gone, you close the darkness back up inside and become a normal person again. So can you tell me about them? Well, if you if you think about some of the things that police officers have to deal with, whether it's a a violent, violent suspect or responding to children who have been poisoned by their parents and then the parents commit suicide. If you think about the kind of intestinal fortitude that it takes to deal with those types of situations, you know, you take the violent offender, for example, who's, you know, threatening you with a gun or a knife or, you know, you're in a fight for your life. If you think about what that takes, right, there there has to be some amount of darkness within you to be able to deal with the darkness in the world, because there are a lot of people out here who are kind of naive to the idea that there is a tremendous amount of evil out there and they would rather not think about it and because they don't have to deal with it and because they don't have to deal with it they would rather not think about it but police officers have to deal with that evil every single day and they're exposed to a tremendous amount of trauma on almost a daily basis and so it takes a certain amount of you know darkness and sort of uh, this grotesque side of your personality to be able to actually deal with that and compartmentalize it in a way where you're not having a nervous breakdown after you deal with you know, a traumatic situation like that. So I suppose it's somewhat of a coping mechanism uh, to be able to deal with that amount of trauma. And then, of course, once you've dealt with that threat or, or that trauma or, you know, that dangerous situation or whatever it is, then you can put the darkness back inside. And it sounds kind of morbid, but I think a lot of police officers probably would relate very well to, to that because, 
it, again, it, you know, it takes a criminal, criminal to catch a criminal, you know what I mean? It takes a cr- thinking like a criminal to be able to understand why they do the things they do and, to, you know, to be able to, you know, solve a crime and catch the bad guy and, and, and charge and convict them. But I, you know, police work isn't for the faint of heart, you know, and anybody who is faint of heart, who attempts to do police work doesn't last very long. So that's that's what I meant by that specific passage is that you have to have a certain amount of I don't want to say insanity, but, uh, you know, again, it's it can best be described by by darkness, because I don't think people who are constantly or or or, or continuously kind and loving and, and compassionate can really do can really effectively do police work. I mean, there's a time and a place for that. Don't get me wrong. There's a time and a place for compassion and empathy, but there's also a time and a place for aggression and those types of things in police work as well. But that's the side that people don't want to acknowledge. They they want to pretend that that doesn't actually exist and that police officers are just these friendly neighborhood police officers engaging in community policing and everything's fine and, and dandy and everybody gets along, but that's not the reality. Yeah. Well, and you also talk about getting assigned to the, what was it be, the sexual assault unit investigating sex crimes involving children? Yeah. So in, in the Twin Falls Police Department, we did, we had a narcotics division and then we had a general investigations division or a detective division. And so anything that wasn't drug related that needed to be investigated went to the detective division. And there were about eight of us, I think eight detectives at one time. And each detective sort of had their specialty, I guess. And so eventually my specialty, so to speak, were, were sexual assaults or sex crimes and especially sex crimes involving children. And you talk about being traumatized by patrol work, but this, you say in the book, this was an entirely different plane of darkness. Even when my shift was over, no matter what I did, I couldn't escape the details and circumstances of each horrible case. And they just kept repeating over and over, eating away at my mind. Yeah. I mean, so if you think about the difference between what a patrolman does and what a detective does, you know, patrolmen, they respond to initial calls for service. Again, they're, they're sort of the, the primary responders and they they come and they control the scene and make the scene safe and if it's appropriate they can make arrests and you know and file charges but if you're talking about sex crimes normally those cases are passed off to detectives because they take a little more investigative work in order to solve so for example i was assisting the department of homeland security in a in a child pornography case their investigation brought them to twin falls and their primary suspect lived in a motel in Twin Falls. And he was recording all of these lewd acts that he would do with his 11 year old daughter, and then he would sell them to other pedophiles online. And so, you know, they needed help writing a search warrant and, you know, during doing surveillance and things like that. And so I, I got to see all of the details of their investigation, which included videos and, and photos, you know, of the footage of these lewd acts that he was performing on his daughter, or that he would make his daughter perform on him. And it's just that type of heinousness and, you know, just again, just evil. It doesn't go away. You learn how to cope with it. You learn how to compartmentalize and deal with it in a healthy way eventually. But those images are seared into your brain forever. Those types of examples are what I was referring to uh, in that part of the book. It's again, it's something that not a lot of people realize that police officers have to deal with. And it's something at the time where you're like, well, okay, this, yeah, this is evil. This is horrible, but it's not going to affect me. But eventually it does. Because again, those those images are seared into your mind for a reason, because they're traumatic and they're they're awful. They're horrible. So police officers have to have to find a way because nobody's going to do it for them. And there are very few resources accessible and available for police officers to find professional help to deal with that kind of stuff. And you talk about getting to the point where 
you let your command staff know that you were having a difficult time mm -hmm. and they, they, you say here, they, you were instructed to report to a psychiatrist for a fit for duty. Uh, they handed you a EAP pamphlet and said, good luck. Yeah. And then you left, they left and I sat in silence wondering if this is the end of my law enforcement career. I never felt so alone. Yeah. And I think a lot of police officers go through that exact same scenario and we don't ever hear about it. You know, in, in my case, what had happened was these, you know, these these types of calls or investigations that I was dealing with on a daily basis almost and combined with some personal things that I, had, you know, that I had gone through in my own life were, were taking a toll and it was affecting my performance. And, you know, having a talk with my supervisors about it, they decided that it was best if I go on the you know FMLA for a couple of months and then they put me on leave and then they wanted uh, me to uh, submit to a fit for duty evaluation by a psychiatrist and it felt to me like a like a punishment like well okay why am I being put on leave is you know isn't there something else that I can do while I continue working but then you know have the support that I need to deal with the things that are that are sort of boiling over at this point mentally and emotionally but I got put on leave I got sent home uh, two of my supervisors showed up with a pamphlet, the EAP pamphlet, and said, here you go. Uh, good luck with everything. And they left. And I was like, oh, okay. I <laughs> didn't really know what to do at that point. And so I called the number on the pamphlet. And I think like a 17 or 18-year-old kid answered the phone. And he was probably taking a nap. And I woke him up. And, and he didn't – the greeting wasn't uh, good afternoon. This is the em employment employment or employee assistance uh, service or whatever. He said, hello. And I said, is this the uh, employee assistance provider? And they're like, yeah. And I said, well, OK, I, I need to find a, a counselor and I, I'm unfamiliar with the process. Can you help me understand how it works? And very nonchalantly and very disinterestedly, he said, well, you just have to find a counselor that accepts EAP and then go to them. And I was like, this is like any other anybody else probably would have just thrown the pamphlet in the garbage and started drinking. You know, and that's not to say that I'm anything special, but I wanted to go through with it because I actually wanted help. So I started checking around at different clinics and found a clinic that accepted the the employee assistance service and ended up meeting with a counselor once a week, I think for four or five months, something like that. And it helped tremendously. But the problem is if I hadn't been determined myself to do that, which is what it takes anyway. But the fact that my employers were so, they seemed to be just put out by the fact that I needed this and that I wasn't just tip top, you know, well oiled, ready to go to work every day, clock in, do the work, clock out and just be like a robot. It was inconvenient for them. They looked at me like some sort of liability. And they at that point, I was like, well, I'm on borrowed time. You know, they want to get rid of me again. I, I did the fit for duty evaluation, the, the initial one received counseling, did another fit for duty evaluation, and they determined that I was fit for duty. And so I went back to work after that for with the Twin Falls Police Department, I think for another year or so. So I know, didn't realize it's, that it's not a it's not a pleasant they, they don't make it they don't make it very easy for police officers to be able to seek out mental health resources. I thought they fired you. They did. The police, oh. <laughs> the Twin Falls Police Department did fire me again. I, I, I believe they wanted to fire me when I was having those issues for which I needed help. Luckily for me, I had a really good. FOP attorney. And he came, he came down with me for all of my interviews and all of the little hearings that they had for me and sort of reminded the police department, like, Hey, if you fire him now, we're going to have an ADA claim against you. 
and they thought, oh, okay. So they waited and they bided their time. And later on, they ended up firing me for turning in a late police report. Oh, jeez. You know, and it's like, okay, how many how many times do reports get turned in late? You know, especially when there's nothing to them. But that was the, you know, I gave them the excuse that they were looking for. Foolish on my part, but that's what happened. And I mean, it happens every day. You know, police officers hold reports for, you know, a later date uh, because they get backed up on on things. And so that's it was it was clear that the Twin Falls Police Department didn't want me around after that. And I was honestly I was relieved to go at that point because I didn't want to to go to work knowing that I had a bullseye on my back and wondering, okay, is this the day that they decide to fire me? Cause that was, right. the, that was the feeling that I had going to work from that day forward. Right. Ugh. And I know you talk about your officer involved shooting. I think you mentioned it earlier. Did that lead, did that contribute to the trauma for you? I have to believe. I, yeah. You know, to an extent, you know, some, a lot of people are surprised to know that it wasn't the biggest source of, of trauma. And I think that probably had a lot to do with the fact that I wasn't the only one involved. There were three other officers involved in that shooting and we all made the same choice, you know? So it's like, okay, well, I'm not alone in this. These officers made the same choice I did. So either we're all right or we're all wrong. <laughs> and uh, of course that, you know, it got the media attention and, it, and again, it, it sort of attracted the people coming out of the woodwork to condemn the police officers for not tasing the guy and not shooting him in the leg and not saving his life. And after we shot him and just the people that don't understand the reality of police work. But, you know, obviously we ended up getting cleared by the, uh, you know, the Idaho state police did the investigation and handed the, the case off to the Twin Falls County prosecutor. And they, you know, they cleared all of us in that incident. So, but yeah, I mean, sure. You, you know, you take another person's life and it, there's a, a certain amount of trauma that I think, you know, people experience after having done something like that. But the, I think the main source of, I guess, the demons, as it were, that, that haunted me from my police work had to do with children victims, especially children who, who are victims of, of physical and sexual abuse. Those types of incidents really take their toll on you. Yeah, no, I can't imagine. I mean, I've talked to other detectives about this. I interviewed a detective with the Seattle PD's Internet Crimes Against Children Unit and she said to me, you know, once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. I also interviewed retired LAPD detective Moses Castillo in episode five. The majority of his career was spent in investigating crimes, specifically sexual crimes against children. And the toll on him was, was very clear. So I, you know, tough stuff. Yeah. As far as your incident, I did want to say that this guy pulled a gun at you and pointed it at your head. So I'm unclear why there would be any debate. He did. Yeah. I, so <laughs> I was, I, we, we had gone to look for this guy because he had a felony warrant and we knew the motel room that he was staying in. And so we made an entry into the room where there were two other felons and, you know, we ended up cuffing them up and sort of moving them to the side. And this guy that we were looking for was hiding in the bathroom. And of course we didn't just go into the bathroom because we didn't know, you know, if he had a gun, a knife, you know, what kind of threat was behind that door. And so we kind of waited for a minute and we did have a canine unit on scene with us, but he was out back in case this guy jumped out through a window or something. So one of the female officers that was in the room with me, I told her, I said, Hey, why don't you go outside and, and get Ken, you know, the canine handler and have him come in and we can just send the dog into the bathroom and, and bring this guy out. Well, as soon as she left, this guy comes out of the bathroom and he's got a gun that he's kind of hiding behind his leg. So I don't see the gun initially and I'm yelling at him, giving him commands to get on the ground. And he tries to run past me and out the open door 
you know, out, out of out of the front door. And so I grab him kind of by the front of his shirt to try and, you know, clumsily pull him to the ground because I've got him in one hand and my gun in the other hand. And he, and he he's still trying to get out the door. So I push him up against the wall. And that's when he brings his gun up and points it in my face. And, you know, only for like a split second, I kind of moved my head offline and grabbed his hand and fired around into his chest. And he he pushed me at that point, which I didn't expect him to be able to be still so, you know, physically capable after being shot in the chest. But that's what happened. He pushed me because he was under the influence of meth at the time. And I tripped over a rug that was kind of bunched up in the middle of the floor. One of my partners who was in the narcotics division at the time tackled this guy in the doorway as he was trying to leave. And I hear four more shots go off. And I'm thinking, well, this guy just shot my partner because my partner didn't have his gun drawn. Mm. So I know the shots didn't come from him. And I know that the suspect still had the gun in his hand. And so my partner, he was kind of, he startled and he let the guy go. And the guy ran through the parking lot, pointing his gun back toward us as we're standing in the doorway. And so we shot him several more times after that. And he went down and died in the parking lot of the motel. I don't know how that could possibly cause anyone any criticism. I think, I just, I really think that, you know, people believe that police officers are supposed to have this ability to save everyone, even even if that person is trying to take their life, whether it's shooting them in the leg or you know shooting a weapon out of their hand, just mm-hmm. this very unrealistic expectation of a police officer's capabilities when it comes to, to a deadly threat. Mm-hmm. And my thought is, if you're going to put someone's life in danger and you die because of that, that's on you. That's 100% on you. So... It's, you know, I don't know that those people will ever, ever be able to be reasoned with. <laughs> that They'll ever see the reality of, of a deadly force situation when it comes to police officers defending themselves. But thank God they're not the ones on the Supreme Court or in any other court, you know, mm. in this in this country. Well, it's also too bad that you don't hear from people like me who do support you. Yeah, it's, it's hard for us to figure out how to tell you. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, with your show, with your with your podcast, I think that's a, a perfect way to do it. You know, most people don't have that. Most people don't know where to start or, you know, how they can possibly go about telling officers like, hey, I get it. I understand what you're going through and you have our support other than to, you know, say something in the comment section of their, you know, social media videos or posts or, or something like that. But your I think your show ju- does just that. And it's wonderful. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I I do want to talk about the social media that you do. I really like when you take an incident and break it down and explain to the audience why it played out the way it did. Yeah. So we talked about the one earlier with the two young men. You how do you how did these videos come to you? Do you find them or do people send them to you? Both. Some okay. you know sometimes I'll just randomly they'll show up on my, on my feed or, you know, I have friends or, or people that will either send them to me in a private message or they'll tag me in a video and ask for my thoughts on it. You know, you also say the things that maybe people don't want to hear, but a lot of times you're responding to someone who's made a comment, you know, a rather ill-informed borderline nonsensical uh, comment and explaining to them why they're wrong, you know, or trying to explain to them, how it really is. But a lot of these comments, again, are just a little out there. Yeah, they're very ill-informed. And also with your videos, you often share statistics that more accurately tell the stories of law enforcement, especially when it comes to use of force. 
I mean, and if you want to talk about statistics, I mean, I've, I've done several videos on uh, on your likelihood of being shot and killed by by police. I mean, if you think about the number of police officers we have in this country, which is almost 700,000, and the number of contacts they make with the general public every day, which is about 15 per officer on average in a single day, you do the math on that, it's like millions and millions of, of contacts every single day. And the fact that only about a thousand, between a thousand and twelve hundred people, are shot and killed by police, and that's not distinguishing the ones that are justified from the ones that are unjustified. And I think the percentage of that, the the amount of unjustified shootings by police, of that thousand people, you know, per year on average, is literally like three percent, maybe. So your odds of being shot and killed by police, whether it's justified or not, is literally point zero 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 six percent. So to to suggest that that there's a pandemic of, of white officers shooting and killing black people. And that's the biggest threat to the black community. America is just absolutely ridiculous because more white people are shot and killed by the cops than are black people to, to, to throw race in there as the primary factor for why black, black men are being shot and killed by the cops is just, it's again, it's an, it's a narrative. It's not truth. I think part of the problem is when the only stories that get covered in the news are certain types of incidents and then they're covered with a media bias no wonder people don't understand real police work. They're not being given a logical, reasonable explanation. Yeah. You know, somewhere along the line, there are people who have, I'm sure, suffered at the hands of law enforcement. We can't sure. say that's never happened. I would like to actually find a way to have this conversation without offending anybody. I mean, it is a conversation two ways, right? You're shaking your head now. <laughs> well, no, I because I've thought that same thing. I'm like, well, how can we have this conversation, an honest conversation without offending too many people? And I don't think you're going to be able to have that conversation without some people being offended. But the reasonable people can have that conversation with you. And they, you know, they I mean, I have plenty of of uh, colleagues and acquaintances and friends who happen to be black and who happen to have either been in or are currently in law enforcement who who will shut down that narrative every single time. But they don't listen to them just the same way they don't listen to me or you. So yeah, right. <laughs> there, I think there are people out there who, who are willing to be reasonable enough to at least listen and have a discussion. And that's a step in the right direction. Well, the thing that led me to you was an the, Anthony McNeil interviewed you for the Off-Duty podcast and was telling you the story that I told him about being on a ride-along. And the call came out for a guy that was known to have be armed and known to flee. Uh -huh. And it, it uh, got a big response because of that, but also because it was in an area of town where both the King County Sheriff and the Seattle Police Department patrol. Okay. So the visual was there were like five white officers and a black suspect. And there was a, I was filming and the black guy next to me, civilian, asked me, are they arresting him because he's black? And I said, well, no. And then I looked at him and then I looked at the situation. I thought, well, geez, I guess I... I understand why he sees it this way. Yeah. But th the good news was he hung around and he asked one of the officers why they did what they did. And the officer told me later he was able to explain why and the guy listened. That's all I'm asking for. Yeah. And, you know, it was valuable to me to see it through his eyes. And I was comforted knowing he was able to have this conversation. Sure. I'm glad that that gentleman you were referring to actually listened and, and you know, and understood because he wanted to understand. But most people. Right. Well, I shouldn't say most people, at least a lot of the people that I that I talk to and that I come head to head with on this issue aren't willing to listen to an alternative 
explanation or hear an alternative perspective that would help them understand the reality. Let's talk about what you're doing now so the audience knows where to find you. So I've got my own podcast, the the Officer Nate podcast. I so I, I, mean, I published a book uh, last year. Well, I guess it would be um, 20, 2021 is when the book was was published. Um, I have a nonprofit organization that I've just gotten off the ground called the Blue Lives Foundation to benefit police officers. And my original vision when I when I started getting that together was to be able to help officers who found themselves in situations similar to mine because I received so much support from people and it was it was almost overwhelming the amount of support and encouragement that I got and I thought you know if if police officers could experience even a fraction of the love and support that I felt I think it would it would really encourage officers to to stay on the job for one but also to encourage new officers to to start their careers knowing that there are so many people out there who do understand the the importance of having police officers, having good men and women out on the streets and in the communities protecting them. So that's the reason I, I initially created uh, the Blue Lives Foundation. And then something completely not law enforcement related or non, non-political, I'm starting a business with some friends of mine down in Utah. It's uh, called Atmosphere Chiropractic and Wellness. And then we open the doors February 1st. Oh, wow. Who, who will that be for? That's it's for, I mean, it's for everybody. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, anybody who is just generally interested in their, in their health and wellness, you know, athletes would benefit from it because it's, it's more like preventative maintenance and, and for recovery. You know, we offer chiropractic treatment, massage, red light therapy, and cryotherapy. Hmm. So, you know, meditation and mindfulness, things like that. It's kind of a one-stop shop for, for all of those things. Okay. So I'll, yeah. what's it called? atmosphere chiropractic and wellness it's uh it's in lehigh utah okay well we'll put a link to you have a website yeah i'll send it to you okay yeah well nate i've taken a lot of your time today thank you so much for being thanks for having me it was a lot of fun good do you look back at your life and say what the hell (laughs) i think you know i've I've done that literally my whole life but uh this this time with that you know that uh, like you said my life was sort of turned upside down or I should I should say a 180, you know, was was more like it. I, I saw my life going in one direction and then suddenly I was spun around and I'm going in the complete opposite direction. But it's been good. I've been given a lot of really good opportunities and I've met a lot of really amazing people along the way. And there's more good things to come. Good. So, All yeah. right. So I'll send people to you on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. Yeah, just I mean, just real quick for your for your listeners on TikTok now it's Officer Nate one point three. Instagram is the Officer Nate on YouTube and Facebook it's Officer Nate. And we want to make sure to mention your podcast, which is the Officer Nate podcast on all podcast platforms. And we also want to get your website in there. What is it again? My website is bluelivesfoundation.org, and that's also where you can order my book. Okay, and yeah. again, it's it's very good. So. Thank you. Thanks again. So all of Nate's information will be in the episode notes along with the TikTok we discussed. Thank you as always for listening. I really appreciate it. I also want to thank the listeners who have posted reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to contact me with ideas, questions, or if you want to be on the podcast, please feel free to email me. That's abby at ellsworthproductions.com. Thanks again for listening.